0: And everyone thinks that you can do a hyper automation project and it's really not a project. It's a program. It's like a lifestyle change that you need to do. Hmm. There is no end to a a hyper automation uh, program, primarily because it's evolving all the time, right? You implement using agile, different aspects of automation in the business And as the market change, you want to analyze, is the thing that I implemented, is it actually adding value over time or do I need to pivot or adjust, right?
1: Welcome back to Bots and Thoughts, the hyper automation podcast sponsored by Salient Process. I'm your host, Jimmy Hewitt, aka Mr. Automation. hey everyone i recently sat down with someone who is actually moving the hyper automation market mike lim has been in the hyper automation space for more than 20 years and during this interview he talks us through his illustrious career lessons learned along the way and focuses the discussion around the ibm process mining acquisition that he made last year how to use it and makes an argument for process mining being not a project but a lifestyle Hmm. how is process mining a lifestyle might you ask you're about to find out from mike lim global director of acquisitions for the ibm automation team i hope you enjoy this interview with you my friend mike lim we've known each other for the better part of the last decade i think we met in Chicago at an IBM automation event. We have visited several IBM automation clients together in New Jersey and New York. Uh, But for those out there listening who have not met you and don't know you yet, please, who is Mike Lim? Uh, How did you get introduced to hyper automation and what are you up to these days? Sure, sure. Uh, Again, uh, my formal name is Michael Lim, but people call him me
0: as Mike Lim. That's how you know if you're a friend or just an acquaintance, right? So mm-hmm. if you're calling me Mike, then we're definitely friends. Um, I, I work for IBM. I do uh, a lot of things around acquisitions that we're doing in the software side of our portfolio. Um, over the past two and a half years, I've done um, two acquisitions. I'm actually working on a third acquisition, helping our Uh, Data and AI organization acquire a a new piece of technology, Um, and uh, been in automation for pretty much the majority of my career. I I get surprised at how long I've been. It's it's funny when I start looking back and saying, "Yeah, I've been in automation." Oh my gosh! Like over twenty-one years. I mean, there's people that that they're now able are of drinking age to drink now from the time that (laughs) I started to do. uh, Automation. So I've been it, and I've watched it kind of mature and blossom over the years. Uh, most of my career have been in software companies as we built technologies to help people embrace automation. Um, but then, um, you know, I had a couple stints where I've done s- services projects. It's kind of nice to do services projects. Can you can actually see the products actually working, um, and it it's been it's been great. Um, Some people say I'm one of the thought leaders just because I've worked for so many different vendors um, and I've advised so many different vendors on kind of building hyper automation types of solutions. Um, But, you know, net, net, I I just, I I was fine automation technology to be really rewarding. Like I get to see the fruit of how it transforms businesses and organizations when they use it and apply it. And I, and I get excited when I see it, you know, and, um, it's, it's, it's a blessing that I have an opportunity to do this and, and i be able to share, uh, with the audience the stuff that I've been able to see and be able to accomplish
1: and help. Absolutely. Mike, you have a lot to contribute to this hyper automation space. Uh, within that, I'm curious of all the different features, functions, or capabilities within the world of hyper automation, what would you say is your favorite and why?
0: <laughs> well, favorite is, I'd be honest, I'd be biased because all most of my career I've only worked in in the workflow space, right really mm. around technologies that actually help deliver work to people or systems to get to a business outcome. Some people mm. know this as business process management, some people know it as orchestration. Uh, but I've been really around that technology and, kind of been there as it's matured over time, right? Before, a lot of the workflow solutions were really code-driven based, where you wrote code to describe how work was distributed all the way through a modeling view. That's where a lot of people use tools like Visio to describe how a process actually looks. Um, And then we came to a standard where we wanted a unified standard to do interchange um, and describe execution of a workflow uh, application or workflow solution, which is what we created or what we know as business process modeling notation or BPMN. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really, when you think about BPMN, it really focuses on three aspects of workflow. It One, it lets you kind of describe what the workflow tool or the business process management tool is trying to understand or what it's trying to do. Um, two, it gives you the ability to analyze uh, do what-if scenarios on models. I'm going to talk about that. I know one of the topics you're going to ask me is process mining, but that's really what... Oh, yeah. Does, ...is to analyze the workflow themselves and ensure that it's optimal. And then, last one, at least, you can build applications and solutions where you know a lot of the vendors out there that use workflow, they're able to solve a solution using technology. And all of it is based on a, on a model called BPMN, which is which is really exciting. So I find that exciting. I mean, there's other parts of hyper-automation like business rules, always you know important to have in, in workflow, it just as capture technology, there's RPA, there's content management. I mean, there's a bunch of things, but by far, if you don't have the process right, in my mind, all those other things kind of don't matter.
1: Completely agree. I'm a nine out of 10 on all of the hyper automation capabilities in terms of level of excitement, but I too love workflow, workflow management. Yep. A phrase I just heard last week. I can't believe it took me this long to learn managing by control versus managing by exception. Mm. But that really clicked for me in the world of workflow management. Think Mm -hmm. about how a, a pick your process gets done today at a company Mm -hmm. that is, you know, managed by control. Where are we at? What's the status? When is, you know, when are you going to get it done? Let me know if you need help Manage by control, Mm -hmm. take a random process employee onboarding. If you're onboarding a thousand people a year, that's a lot of management. That's a lot of control. Whereas if you adopt workflow or business process management, you only have to manage by exception. Mm. What does that phrase mean to you for the audience? What what does manage by control versus manage by exception mean to you?
0: I mean, for me, they mean things that you understand and you anticipate that's going to happen versus things that you don't ins- anticipate. Like hmm. what I've noticed now is the markets change so rapidly than I would say probably 10, 15 years ago, right? Companies have to pivot. Mm-hmm. I would say there were more startup companies that are starting in probably the last year than we've done in the last probably 50 years, right? And it's because mm. everyone is looked if you look at the technology in itself, it's become you know, everyone's talking about low code, no code types of solutions. So now people can start building applications without having to be a be a big deep techie to build these applications. And these applications are 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 very easy to build and easy to adapt based on the market change. And so mm. exceptions become a little bit more relevant now because things are changing so rapidly. And how do you handle those exceptions and and you and you would make adjustments, right? Mm. I would say, hey, if you, and you know, maybe it's the Asian spirit in me is like uh, I never go fix anything or buy something new unless it's broken, right? But a lot of times, in the meantime, where I, it is broken, I use duct tape to fix it. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm fixing it, it still works. But actually I'm not fixing it, I'm just patching it. And when you look at an overall process, and that's why analysis is so important, you look at it you workflow, you're, not, you're trying to remove all the duct tapes that were nice to have to fix, to actually fixing the problems, right? And so when we talk mm. about manage by exceptions, there are a lot of things that are changing I don't know if exception is an extreme word, but it's really a word. It's a word that describes the change that's happening and how do you adjust and adapt in a rapid manner. Right. And with all these different technologies being low code, no code, it makes it easier for a business person to make the adjustments than require heavy duty technical resources to actually make the change.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so easy to start managing your business processes with a workflow management platform. I mean, it's all low, no code. If you're listening and you haven't started to pilot workflow management, if you are currently managing by control, you wanna see what it's like to only manage by exception, check it out, very low, no code. Uh, Let's get into some acquisitions since you are leading an acquisition team for IBM. Tell us about the process mining acquisition. What were the kind of circumstances leading up to the decision to buy a process mining company? What was that process like and where is that acquisition at today in August of
0: 2022? Cool. Um, So to be honest, I I would say things like the pandemic did help us justify why this was so important. Um, If you look at through the pandemic or or maybe the last two and a half years, the need to drive business in a digital manner was like explosive. Everybody wanted to digitize things. The reason why they want to digitize things is that unless I take that paper, all that content that's a paper, and I don't convert it digital, then, I, then what happens is all that data becomes stale and it becomes mm-hmm. dead. I want that data to be alive to give me some guide and navigations on what customers want um, and what we need to do to change our business. As I was telling you, the markets change and you have to uh, adjust to the market change. So digitization was very, very key in doing that. On top of that, then COVID happened and then everyone had to work from home. And they were like, we had all these projects that we're running But we ran these projects being an in-company organization where if I had a question or problem, I was able to go walk to the cube next to mine and ask them, hey, how do you do this? And they were able to go and collaborate. But when COVID Mm -hmm. happened and things shut down and we had to work from home, people started to realize that the processes that were running their business was not designed for an out-of-office workspace. And so for them, they were struggling to find what parts of our business processes do I need to change or adapt to a new way of work, right? And process mining was a perfect tool to help discover that because, you know, traditionally what you would do if you wanted to find out how to go and adjust, you would hire a big, you know, global systems integrator to come in and do a whole analysis of your business and, come up with a report which costs you know thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars to do yeah um or but they needed to do that very rapidly in a short amount of time and the only way they could do that is they needed to be able to look at the log files that were driving their business to give them visibility on how their organization operates to start seeing where the adjustments would would, wouldn't they would need to make to adapt right and Process mining, that's exactly what it did. I mean, really, the technology was all about looking at how the businesses operate, like almost like a management consulting firm, and giving you visualizations to see how your business runs. And nine times out of ten, it's funny, when I go and talk to C-level executives and I'll ask them, hey, do you know how your customer onboarding process is? A lot of them didn't actually know. They knew some of the steps, but they didn't know actually how it was running. But it was great when I used process mining and I would look at the logs of their customer onboarding process and I would show them a picture and then they said, wow, this is how it works. And I said, well, let's look at the happy path where probably you know 80% of the process go this way. And then you see 20% of the paths or derivations of it. Like why are those derivations there? And it was great mm-hmm. because now they didn't have to look at 100% other products, they can only look, they only had to focus on the 20% of derivation. Mm-hmm. And this and a is, is a really, really powerful tool to help them start to adjust their business for an out-of-office workspace. And, that, and that's really where it's been explosive in the market, where companies are now adjusting to new way of work. Um, that, that's one gain. The, the, the second gain I would say is we have a lot of customers that buy a bunch of technology and they don't know how to apply it or they don't know where to apply it first second and third because they don't have visibility in the overall business process and what this gives them the ability to do is to help them prioritize so you know i, I don't know of any company that's doing less than 10 you know hyper automation or digital transformation project today now with process mining they can actually start prioritizing it based on what's going to give them the most value upfront, and that's pretty mm-hmm. powerful right So I think those are the two big drivers of why process mining for IBM was important. We wanted to make sure our customers was ready for the dynamic change of the business and the market. And then two, when they have a list of these projects, how do they prioritize it to what's gonna give them the better, the most bang for their buck or their most value from their investments?
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Let's keep talking about process mining for a moment. It's a technology that is not new. In the context of software, mm-hmm. where two years is a decade. Um, but for it, it's not a new thing for people who are, are hyper automation veterans over the last decade, plus 20 years like yourself. But it is becoming much more popular. I think it is the fastest growing category currently in the hyper automation space. You mean to tell me, Mike that rather than interviewing a department head, someone in the know to get a process modeled out like you would in Visio or Blueworks Live, mm-hmm. all you need to do is grab some log files and import them into your process mining platform and voila, you have a process model?
0: Well I mean that that's what it, it does. And what it and how it actually works, we always call it digital exhaust, right? Mm-hmm. Every application has digital exhaust, which means digital results is log files, right? And the log files give you a chronological order of what actions was taken by who, at what time and what the action was. And those are typical things that log files hold. And all that process mining does, it basically takes all the log files, doesn't matter, let's say you look at the HR department, for say, all the different systems that they are interacting with, you pump all the log files into process mining in the engine itself, And it will look at things like timestamps, activities, username, and then based on that data, start building a picture of the actions of what actually happened, right? Because think about it, you know, when when the first step is maybe I logged into the system um, and I logged in at 8 a.m., the next step I opened up this file that's put into the logs. So all those things that happened, it will put it in. And then it's possible I may be swivel chairing to another machine and doing something else and that generates logs. And so all that we're doing is taking all the logs, the AI engine inside of our process mining tool pieces the timelines of how it all works together. And then it gives you a visual picture of what it is. Now, I'll be honest, it it will only generate the pictures of where you have log files. Now I'm pretty sure there's probably activities that, that you do outside of a computer, right? So what it will show you is they'll show you the deltas between the two different logs that you're looking at. And then it will say something's happening here where you can actually fine tune and define a human activity that doesn't exist uh, where they're not using a computer. Like, I mean, I give you an example where uh, if you're tracking the technician of your cable company, right, the guy drives to the site. but uh, You don't have a way to log, you know, that he went from here to here at this time. So you can actually, inside the tool, you can add in a box to represent the driver is actually happening, right? So anything that's log-driven, you can track. Any outside of it, the tool itself gives you the ability to add in additional actions based on things that were not driven by a computer or something that you can't log.
1: So process mining is one of two capabilities in the process discovery bucket we have process mining and process mapping. Mm -hmm. What's your take on how they either complement each other, pros and cons, compare and contrast. What's your take on process discovery and how to, you know, optimize using one, the other, or both.
0: I I always say you got to use both. Right. And, and the reason why is uh, you have to have a baseline understanding to make sure you understand why the derivations exist. It's funny. I remember one time I talked to a client, the, uh, the process discovery discussion led to uh, a map, a, a modeling map, but it actually was a derivation of what everyone else was doing. But they thought that was the baseline, right? So if, when you do discovery, it's to be able to go and interact and understand what they think that the process should be. And sometimes they actually have it. They have somebody that actually built the model in Visio. So it's good to have a baseline. And then when you do process modeling, you're actually revalidating. You're looking at the actual data and comparing it to the reference model that you had. Right? Some companies don't have the luxury of both. doesn't matter. What happens is the first time you run your process mining model, then you figure out the actuals. That becomes your new reference model. So one of the things that we do with our IBM tool is once you build your, your, the actual model, you can export the BPMN model, and then that becomes your new reference model going forward. And in some companies that use BlueWorks Live, we have a lot of customers that use BlueWorks Live, they already have these reference models, but they need to revalidate that the reference models are actually accurate to what's actually happening, and they can use that as a reference. So I I don't think that there's any pros and cons and differences, they're they're best used together because you always Mm -hmm. want to show a reference. Um, They're more complementary than competitive,
1: in my view. I agree. And it sounds like with the product maturity of process mining, you have some process modeling capabilities.
0: Yes and no. You do have modeling capabilities. I mean, I would never use, it's like I would never, I never would uh, drive my BMW to go down the driver to get the mail.
1: Yes. Fair enough. Do that. Fair enough.
0: But that's not what I'm using it for. But is there a capability to model? Yes, but I wouldn't buy process money for modeling per se.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Would love to get into some use case discussion. We've been talking generically about, I think we've been picking on HR today for employee onboarding and procurement <laughs> for new customer onboarding. Um, but I, lo- I would love to ask you, what is your favorite hyper automation use case? Um, whether it's something that, you know, someone in your organization has done and you've been a part of, or something that you yourself have been intimately hands-on with. Um, we said earlier in the, in, in the, in the podcast that we just get really excited by hyper automation outcomes. What comes to mind in terms of an outcome that gets you really excited and why?
0: Um, It would probably have been very, very early in my career. I uh, was able to do a project for the Department of Justice. And Mm -hmm. um, this project was building out the business process model for how a bill becomes a law. And it was cool because I got to go in, um, got to go and interview the process, understand all the things that actually happen, all the nuances of it. And then we had an. We then we built it into an application, uh, where once I got all the requirements, looked at all the constituents that actually get involved. I got to see in those times. I got a chance to meet some senators and some Congress people mm-hmm. to do the interviews of the process. But it was cool that I was there early, very early on, where the government was actually embracing process modeling to define the process and then built um built some of the early kind of workflow applications that manage that process we did that for uh it was the a review process we did it for um uh, the freedom of information act so i got a chance to speak to many different people around those processes and it's cool because and i find it to be exciting because now when i go watch the news about a new Bill being signed or a new law being passed and things. I it was cool because I, I know those processes and all those steps. I'd yeah. be honest; it, it happened twenty years ago, so things that might have changed a
1: little bit. No, but, but still, I, you played a part in yeah. getting that law passed sooner yeah. than it would have. Yeah. without it, without and hyperautomation, cool.
0: and that's that's great when you see that's exciting. Of using the tool um, and using technology that we all talk about all the time.
1: That's really cool. That's a cool use case. Yeah, uh, part of what excites me about being in hyperautomation and seeing these outcomes is just how different they all are from each other. Yep. Yeah. I mean, how many different industries are there oh, in America? How many different sub industries within them? Yeah. How, yeah. how many departments or divisions comprise those sub industries and industries? Mm-hmm. I think it's impossible to have any, you know, one person, company, uh, vendor, nonetheless, see or automate, you know, every possible process within every possible industry, that would be really cool. That would be a beautiful end state. I think humanity would elevate itself to the next higher order of existence. If that, if that happens, that certainly is the goal. Um, but until then we can make businesses more, more efficient. We can maximize the, uh, throughput and output, the value creation and make our lives a lot easier along the way. Yep. Um, and, and, and until you know,
0: that's we... cool is when you start seeing, and again, at IBM, we're, we're, we're very blessed because we have such a diverse set of customers, but a mm-hmm. lot of customers, they have relationships with each other. Right. And it's cool mm-hmm. when they're using our workflow or parts of our hyper automation technology in one company and they have one of their customers, which is one of our customers, are using the technology. Now you can you can start letting them say, hey, we can look at the whole process together. Right. Because everyone is a supplier at some point in the process. Mm-hmm. I think that that is where blockchain and technology like that will play a big role big play when we're looking at, um, interactions and, uh, how companies interoperate together. Right. Um, that, that's, sure. that's really cool. And, and we're just kind of in the, in the forefront of that right Right now. Yeah.
1: The beginning of the beginning their
0: businesses, I think tomorrow they're going to be optimizing their supply chains as they're working
1: together mm-hmm.
0: and driving value holistically.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, would love to ask kind of a practical question here, Mike, for the listeners out there, the question is how can, or how have, or how do hyper automation projects fail? Mm. What comes to mind and how can those failures be kind of hedged or, or mitigated or, or avoided?
0: Well, I think the key word that you said is a project. And everyone thinks that you can do a hyper automation project and it's really not a project. It's a program. It's like a lifestyle change that you need to do. Hmm. There is no end to a a hyper automation, uh, program primarily because it's evolving all the time, right? You implement using agile, different aspects of automation in the business. And as the market change, you want to analyze, is the thing that I implemented, is it actually adding value over time or do I need to pivot or adjust, right? Most, Most things that fail that I've seen in automation is where they do it as a finite project, and then they have no ability to add in controls to adjust for change that happens over time, right? And that's so important that people have to know that really when you think about hyper automation, it's not a race, it's a marathon you got to think of the long tail of it because you don't get the 100% of the benefit just from the first project. You get it as it evolves over time, as the business is evolving over time, right? Getting the foresight, understanding how the change in the market should be changing adapting your business. And if people would have done that, that we're investing in hyper automation type technologies today, the impact that it did to companies when COVID happened would have been mitigated because they were already continually evolving because they they knew the market was changing and things that were in fact, geo things that were happening could impact a business and it knew how to adjust very, very quickly. And so my biggest thing that I always tell companies when they do hyper automation, like continually encourage them, don't think of it as a project, think of it as a lifestyle change or a company lifestyle change because it's really about monitoring the health and ensuring that you're always going to understand how the market impact will dynamically change how your business should operate over time, right? And Let that's me ask something that's very, very challenging for companies to understand.
1: I think that's extremely insightful to prevent hyper-automation failure by thinking about it and committing to it as a lifestyle as opposed to a project. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess where my mind goes with that is, and not to play devil's advocate here, but it's hard to, I would imagine that it's hard to make an enterprise wide mindset commitment before the proof points are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, quick wins would, would provide a proof point. Um, mm-hmm. so not to get into, you know, super tedious debate between project versus lifestyle, but how, can an organization make that lifestyle commitment? Uh, what does getting started look like? Does it, you know, start with executive sponsorship? Is it is it true that we can really get lifestyle commitment before the first pilot gets kicked off? Or what about the company who uh, is trying to prove it out and needs a project? They need a quick win. Um, is there value to that? Or would they really be best off by you know, first seeking executive sponsorship and adopting it as a lifestyle.
0: Well, well, I mentioned to you again, that's different between how do I choose which one to go first, right? So one, it's got to be an agreement at the executive level that says, you know what? We need to ensure that our business is resilient when there's change. And I, and I'll be honest because of the pandemic, it was a wake up call for many companies to say, wow, Mm -hmm. we were not ready. Right. And so I think the question of should we do automation or not, I think they're realizing they have to. It's not a should we do it or not. It's something that they have to do. Now, the, the degree of how they apply it and where they apply it will be determined based on projects and POCs. And when I mean projects, they're just more POC types of a proof of concepts of where to apply it. I think the reason why people did a lot more projects than actually go into a lifestyle change is because they didn't have a tool to help them understand which one to do first, which one was the most important, which one to monitor. That's really where process mining in my view is so valuable in any organization because what I would do is, Hey, first let's all come to an agreement. Do you believe this is a lifestyle change or a company change that your company wants to embrace to be able to be adaptable to market changes So that major events don't impact my business. Like, first, you got to get to an agreement there. Second, let's run process mining to look at all the potential opportunities that you have that could be automation candidates. It could be very low hanging fruit, like maybe a simple RPA project that could go in and digitize some of the workload that humans are doing, right? You can do that. That's what process mining will help you understand, right? Do that as a proof of concept so that you can say, ah, this is how I'll apply it. How could I apply automation and what's a low-hanging fruit and then see some value? Now, one of the great things about process mining, not only will it just tell you all the different projects, it will help you run simulations to help you prioritize them in, in, in the change, right? As I told you, it's a journey, it's a marathon. So yes, you'll start with a little bit of RPA here. Maybe you might do some OCR technology to extract some data to digitize this. You can, add, you can generate, Value, you know, monetary value from the data that you generate. Maybe it's content management, maybe it's business rules, but you start out small with it, but over time, know that it's incremental. It's something that will always have to apply over time. I think that's why people did projects because they didn't know where to start. Right now with Mm -hmm. the technology being there, first thing I would always say is let's go run uh, a process mining project just to analyze your business and uh, find out the low hanging fruit that you want to go and tackle then build out the list of prioritization of automation projects you want to do, and then tackle them. And again, some companies be on the size, they might want to do all of them, up front, which I don't recommend. <laughs> and some people will say, mm-hmm. let's be very, very tactical, and let's focus on the low-hanging fruit that's going to give us some quick wins, right? But you need to have a roadmap of it, and that's really what process mining helps you understand
1: it and, and to start with. I like that. That's well said. So making a lifestyle choice as a company to be a continuous improvement, a hyper automation company does not, is not mutually exclusive to pilots and POCs and quick wins. Uh, I think we agree that they go very much so hand in hand, but kind of like a, uh, like a lifetime fitness approach personally. Yep. Making the decision to, you know, walk for 20 minutes a day, making the decision to be healthy and live longer is, the hardest part, yep making that decision um, after your first walk, you feel great your second walk you feel even better, and it's you know a, a, a virtuous downhill slope from there. Uh, do you kind of see hyper automation in the same way as a commitment to uh, corporate excellence
0: I, like I said, I don't think it's an, it's an option now. I think companies are realizing this is something mm. we
1: raise, right raise the stakes. It,
0: yeah, it's different. Before they were thinking, oh, you know, we can just operate. Like I told you, like I don't fix anything that unless it's actually truly broken. Right. You can't operate in duct tape world anymore. You've got to go and you know make sure your company's healthy, make sure your company's resilient. Because when things like a pandemic or things like global changes or dynamics, like even you think about, you know, we're we're just talking earlier about. Um, buying a car and how the car prices are gone up because of you know some of the supply chain issues. Like mm-hmm. unless you actually plan for it, your your business is not resilient to the market change. You have to make sure you are, and so automation and making it part of the DNA and the fabric of the business is going to be core for success.
1: Yeah, I heard a really interesting stat yesterday that you just kind of reminded me of. Ten thousand uh, baby boomers are retiring every day. Mm. The Wall Street Journal, I believe it was, did a kind of proof check on that stat, and they they validated that it's actually eleven thousand. Oh, no, retiring per day. Wow. How does uh, how does hyper automation help with what that implies
0: no it's it's a good point because i i saw the same thing it wasn't retiring per se but i saw an aging workforce when i would go to japan i would Mm. go there and i would see you know people still working in their mid-60s and it wasn't like that they needed to work it was like the companies needed them to stay because they nested all the skills and the knowledge and there was such a big gap between the senior and the junior people that are coming out of college and taking on those jobs and responsibilities. And there was no ability to do knowledge transfer, right? That That's a fundamental problem. So being able to reap and learn skills is is a hard thing. Um, I and mean, again, in automation, there's always technologies like task mining, which is part of process mining, where I can start recording Actions and things of how people do work, and then put it on a dashboard and say, Hey, these are the patterns that we see. And it seems like when we take this particular path based on this type of work type, we find we can do it 80% faster. So, technology is going to start learning these skills, it's going to start digitizing those skills and making them available as knowledge repositories that are available. I, I'm seeing, technology. I mean, we have a new offering that we just launched. Um, we, we announced it last year, but we launched our first GA release this year called Watson Orchestrate. That's exactly what it does. It basically, right now we're focusing on HR use cases where it's looking at patterns of how HR uh, managers and HR representatives um, are, are performing tasks. And it's starting to digitize and learn work habits and making that available as skills into a library. So we're going to see a lot of digitization Mm -hmm. of skills, but where humans are going to add value is how do I apply the skills at what point in the process is where humans are going to be. So they're going to be much more focused on the critical thinking of how to apply the skills than actually learn the skills. And I think that will actually help resolve kind of the aging workforce or... You could call it the great resignation where you have an older generation retiring and you're still able to reap and keep the skills that they were performing.
1: From the outside, well, not the outside looking in, but from a macro perspective, um, it seems like there's two major drivers to hyper automation, one being the great resignation, all these people retiring, leaving the workforce. How many business owners do you know that complain constantly about not being able to find work find help all of them yeah um and there's another um trend out there that is at an all-time high and continues to grow and that is uh found mostly in the younger generation of workers but that is to experience meaning at work right a paycheck is not enough especially 20 30 year olds Um, in the zennial millennial generation, value meaningful work more than money, which is different from the exes and baby boomers. Yep. Um, How is, or would you agree, and if so, in what way, is hyper automation uh, not only kind of checking the box on solving for great resignation, but also checking the box for solving on give me more meaningful work? Yep,
0: that, that's a good point. It's kind of like my philosophy when people ever work for me. I always say there's three things that keep people motivated to stay at work. The first is you got to have fun. You got to love and enjoy what you do. And if you love and enjoy what you do, you're, the most likelihood that you're not going to leave your job because you, you like it, right? But to have fun, there's two real big drivers to have fun. And this is my second one. Second one is the ability to innovate. I think the need for people to focus on like high value work or things that are driving, um, uh, new experiences, new markets, new opportunities for business is what people like to do, right. That's innovation, right. Or creating new ideas. So that's the second thing. And the third thing, and unfortunately I'm not always the one that can solve this problem is salary, right? Mm -hmm. So. But I do say that they're like the three legs in a stool that you have to manage. Am I having fun with my job? Am I having time to innovate? And am I getting paid for the value that I bring to my business, right? Those are the things that happen. Now, what's been preventing the balance of those three different things had been some of that repetitive, mundane work that people had to do. Like, oh, man, I got to go and, you know, do this Excel report. That, you know, I have to go through four systems and pull data out and, pull it, and it absorbs a period of my time. And when we started to analyze people's work streams, 40%, up to 40% of their work was this repetitive, menial work. And when you're doing that, you're not having fun. You're not doing anything innovative. And you feel like I'm getting paid this salary, but it's like stuff I don't really want to go and do and why we leave. And so...
1: Or it's hard for the business to 40%. justify a higher salary for 40% menial work.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so... What we're trying to do is we're trying to use technology to augment those different things. You know, it could be RPA, it could be a business rule, it could be workflow that could happen. We want to augment those things so that we're focusing on the three things. I mean, like I said, we talked about the great resignation, but I would say we're in the age of the employee now where we really need to focus on the employees and making sure that they have meaningfulness and purpose in their companies. And you know, the only way we're going to do that is we've got to remove, I mean, those work, those work streams have to happen, but how do I digitize those work streams so they can focus on the things that are driving value? And that's what's going to change. That's what's going to help with the great resignation, right? And people are going to start doing work that they're interested in. A lot of people are leaving just because they're not having fun. They're they're stuck doing, you know, basically mundane, repetitive tasks that take up almost, some, some people, they take more than 50% of their work streams doing that. Yeah, and I know
1: someone who's making a quarter million bucks a year dog sitting on Rover. Yeah, 25 bucks a night, and they've got 20 dogs in their backyard. Hmm. They can quit their 40% menial job and dog sit for a living. Yeah, how fun does that sound? (laughs) Yeah, really fun, exactly. Better than
0: (laughs) yeah, spreadsheets and trying things, but like that. That's important, right? And I think that's what's going to address the great resignation. I mean, again, the aging workforce, we, we want them to retire because they need to have fun. They don't want to do work all their lives. But we need to make sure that we give the ability for our next generation employees to have that meaningfulness and purpose in work. And remove the things, the operational stuff out using technology where, you know, I look, I, I really learn a lot from some of our new employees that come in, giving a fresh mind and a fresh view. And, and it's funny when sometimes they'll ask me, like, why do you do that? And I look at it and said, "Well, you know, I've been doing that for ten years. I, I don't know," and um, and they're absolutely right. They give me a fresh perspective, which is helpful. But if I bog them down with repetitive, mundane work, I'll never get that fresh perspective. And that's why it's so important to make sure that the age uh, in the period of the aging employees, we're thinking about those three factors that I mentioned to you.
1: So you agree there is a direct correlation between hyper automation and meaningful work. Yep. I love it. Mike, we are coming up at the top of the hour. I think you have a, a meeting to get to probably yeah. buying another another company, uh, <laughs> but it's always a pleasure chatting with you. This was Absolutely. an incredible interview. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Absolutely. It was my pleasure. And yeah, look, whenever you want to do it again, I'd be glad to go and share some insights.
1: Let's do it. All right. All right, Mike. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bots and Thoughts, the hyper-automation podcast sponsored by Salient Process. Be sure to never miss an episode by hitting that subscribe button wherever you're listening to this. Get your hands on more content like this by following us on LinkedIn, and YouTube, down in the show notes, and say hello. We'd love to hear your thoughts, perhaps even on an upcoming episode. Stay tuned for more episodes of Bots and Thoughts, the hyper-automation podcast brought to you by Salient Process.